2021 uh, City Commission meeting. Uh, before we begin, we're going to have some um, explanation on the format of our meetings from Casey. Good evening, everyone. I'm Casey Toomey, Assistant City Manager, and I want to share some housekeeping items for this meeting. The meeting is being broadcast and recorded on the City of Lawrence YouTube channel. The public chat function for this meeting has been disabled. All chats will go directly to me. When you're not participating in the meeting, please mute your microphone. When you are participating in the meeting, please keep your video on. When you're not participating in the meeting and you turn your video off, you will still be able to hear the meeting. You can turn your video back on when you're not back on when you are participating. By turning your video off, it allows active meeting participants to be seen on the screen. If you have any trouble, please send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute microphones and or turn off video to minimize distractions. Please remember to state your name when you speak for the benefit of those listening remotely. And I'll now turn the meeting back over to our vice mayor. Thank you, uh, Casey. And next we'll hear from our city clerk, Sherry Riedemann to explain a little bit about public comment. Thank you. Um, so when public comment is sought on an item, the vice mayor will first call on those participating in person. Individuals wishing to provide public comment should approach the podium following social distancing and safety protocols. Participants who are required to or choose to wear a mask may remove their mask while making remarks at the podium. Please state your name before speaking and comments will be limited to three minutes. The vice mayor will then call on those participating virtually. Individuals providing public comment via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. The raise hand function may appear in different places on your Zoom menu, depending on the device you are using and which version of Zoom you have. Individuals will be called upon by name in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. When you are called on, please unmute and state your name. Again, comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry. Um, uh, we hadn't been doing roll call, but do you need us to, Sherry? Uh, no. Okay. Um, let's move ahead then just to approve the agenda. The City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during a meeting. Um, uh, do I have any motions or second? Uh, motion uh, made and seconded. Um, all those in favor? Aye. 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 Uh, none opposed. Uh, passes four to zero. Um, recognition proclamations. Uh, we do have one today. Um, so this is my first one, everyone. I'm a little nervous, but here we go. Um, this is for um, 811. Is there anyone to speak on Huh? Is there anyone here to speak on it? Oh, do they speak first? Uh, Sherry, do we have anyone who showed up? Um, I'm not aware, Vice Mayor. Is there anyone to speak? Oh, no, I see him. Yeah. Okay. Would you like to make a statement? Yeah, we did before. I'll pull the back or so. Usually do it before. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead and do before. <clears throat> My name is Mario Gradias. I'm operations manager at Black Hills Energy. On behalf of the 117,000 customers we serve, we sincerely thank you for highlighting the critical and importance of safe digging. 
811 Day is an important observation that we take very seriously. We have a culture in Kansas that we roll up our sleeves and get the job done. But sometimes that pioneer spirit makes us forget uh, the real things in the world as far as anytime you put a fence post in, sprinkler system repair, or any kind of time that you're going to put shovel into the ground, 811 should be called. Um, by not calling it, you do cause that real risk to be facing fines, damages to infrastructures, or even where somebody could get hurt. Our people live and work in engage in our communities. We're neighbors, volunteers, maybe even a soccer coach. And I can tell you nothing more than we want our town to be safe. In conclusion, we sincerely thank you for highlighting the importance of 811. Thank you very much for being here and, and being focused on our safety in our community. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So proclamation. Whereas thousands of times each year, the underground infrastructure in Kansas is damaged by those who fail to contact 811 to have underground lines located prior to digging, resulting in service interruption, environmental damage, and threats to the public safety. And whereas in 2005, the Federal Communications Commission designated 811 to provide contractors and homeowners with a simple number to contact utility operators to request the location of underground lines at the intended dig site. And whereas Kansas 811 provides one point of contact available by phone and online to help reduce damages to underground facilities, thereby reducing the loss of service to the public and loss of time and money to contractors, utilities, and taxpayers. And whereas Black Hills Energy maintains its commitment to educate the public about safe digging practices and encourage compliance with local and state safe digging rules and regulations. And whereas damage prevention is a shared responsibility by using safe digging practices, city contractors and homeowners can save time, money, and help keep Kansas infrastructure safe and connected. Now, therefore, I, Courtney R. Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, sorry, Vice Mayor, um, do hereby proclaim August 11th, 2021 as 811 Day. Um, and to encourage everyone to call 811 before they dig. It's safe, it's free, and it's the law. Uh, now, if we can move on to the consent agenda, um, all matters listed below on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be enacted by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that has been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Uh, are there any commissioners who would like pull items from consent? Seeing none, Sherry, do you see anyone in the public or online who wants to pull something from the consent? Is there anyone that would like an item pulled off of the consent that's here in the chambers? And if there's anyone um, participating via Zoom that has an item on consent they'd like pulled, please uh, raise your hand. Uh, looks like there's no items to pull, Vice Mayor. All right, thank you, Sherry. Um, uh, being that's the case, are there any motions? I'd move to approve the consent agenda. Second. Uh, we have a first and a second to approve the consent agenda. All those in favor? Aye. 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 
Uh, none opposed, four to zero. Um, let's just clip along. How about public comment? Um, the public is allowed to speak to any items or issues except those scheduled on the consent agenda or regular agenda portions of the agenda. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss, debate these items, nor will the commission take decisions on items presented during this time. Rather, they will refer the item to staff for follow-up. If necessary, individuals should address all comments, questions to the commission. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Um, I do see someone in the public who would like to comment. Hi there. My name's Rob Farha, F-A-R-H-A. Uh, I'm a property owner throughout the Oriad neighborhood. I want to bring, the, I don't have time to go to the computer and email you all, so I just thought I'd pop down here. It's a very hectic week. But uh, I have an issue with the water department's policy, and it seems to me uh, the policy stating that you need a, a lease from my tenant to turn the water on. I'd like to get this conversation started with Ms. Wheeler and uh, Jeremy Wilmoth. Uh, that lease is a private contract. It's, uh, we spend a lot of money with attorneys for these leases. The city has, in my opinion, has no right to see the lease. I have signed off a thing to do it. Today, what happened is, to me, they're cherry picking congregate houses. I'm involved in a lot of congregate houses. I have one, they can see right online, it's licensed, everything, five bedroom, but I only gave her one name on the lease. And I, I'll admit I was very curt with uh, Lori Ridner, the supervisor. What's to say I have five separate leases? The one girl that wants it, she wants the water. To me, there's if I have five leases, one lease or whatever, it, in my opinion, there's no right. It's a private contract. They do not need to see if uh, who else is on there. Evergy doesn't do it. Black Hills doesn't do it. I get the excuse. This is a, you know, because uh, of city water, it's our tax dollars if they don't pay. There's systems in place. You have their social security number. You have everything to shut it off if they don't pay. Again, it's a private contract. So what I've done in the past, I've blacked out my, my rental rates, blacked everything out, and it, it's been working, give them the front page and last page. Now on this one, just about an hour ago, she won't turn on unless she sees all the names. In my opinion, that's wrong. You can't deny to a, you can't deny someone utility. So I'm here to get this conversation started with Ms. Wheeler or one of the other attorneys and Jeremy, because to me, it's only happening on concrete houses. I can leave, I don't want to leave my number while we're on TV, but I'll, uh, I'll leave a sample form with my name and number. There's nothing to sign up here. Um, so hopefully we can, something quickly. Uh, we're moving a bunch of people in this Saturday. I've already been down here five times with copies of leases. I mean, I have rentals that are outside the Oread that are single family and I've never been asked for a copy of the lease. So that tells me they're cherry picking this type of uh, property. Any questions for me? No, thank you for speaking. Brandon, can I leave that with you? Is that the best thing? Okay. Uh, Sherry, is there anyone else in the, in the public here who would like to make general public comment on something that's not on the agenda? Yes, of course, please. Thank you. How nice to have everybody in person. It's really, really very appreciated. The, um, as I was looking at just agenda items, it struck me a couple times that the item reports always have a fiscal impact on them. And 
as just a resident of Lawrence, you know, you five, Finkel I excluded because he's not here, are my only opportunity to really be able to address the city as far as a controlling method other than just talking to you. And I view you, and I think you should view yourselves as the representatives of the residents of, of Lawrence, as opposed to the purported executives of the city. What I'm getting at is the fiscal impacts are only and ever in discussion of the impact to the revenue of the city with no discussion or reference to what it does to the residents. So as we are thinking of terms of affordable housing, it seems really painfully obvious that you should be asking for the fiscal impact to be on how all of these things are affecting the residents of Lawrence. Seems pretty straightforward as all of our representatives and the only power we have over the city, I expect that of you. And I'm, I'm hoping that, that you'll be viewing it from a slightly different perspective. So respectfully, thank you. Oh, could you let us know your name? I'm Chris Berger. Thank you. Any, anyone else in the audience who wants to speak now? Is there anyone online, Sherry? If there's anyone on Zoom who has general public comment, please raise your hand. Oops, did I see one on the bottom? Just as Okay. Uh, Chris Flowers. Hi, um, this is Chris Flowers, and I just have an idea. Um, when it comes to the budget and how we're going to be given out, well, suppose, well, um, considering giving out raises, that our, our current budget, like in the long run, won't be able to support unless our tax revenues go up. I was just thinking, what if, like, each year we instead of just giving out the raises we give it out in the form of bonuses that's tied to tax revenue so that way we could be sure not to go into the red like if our tax revenue isn't high enough the the they don't get the bonus but if it is high enough they they get the bonus and i don't know it just because here's my thing i've just been thinking because i've been running that if i in the future, I am on the on the commission. This is I'm I could potentially be screwed if if in a few years from now the budget comes up and we're in the red, and then I have to be making the decision between raising taxes or cutting services. I would just rather have it where we're not making it a, a situation where there could potentially be read in the in the future for the a future commission to be having to deal with the problem. So I, I just hope you guys are thinking of alternatives to to going into the red, like the potential going into the red in the future. So just wanted to throw that out there. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else um, on Zoom or at home that has some public comment? There's no other public comment, Vice Mayor. 
I'm sorry. Did you say that you don't see anything? Yeah, I don't okay. see. Oh. <laughs> did you see some? All right. Casey. Okay. Um, there is some communications I note on here. So people at home would like to read that. Um, that should be available online. Uh, so I think now we can move on to our regular agenda items. Uh, regular agenda item number one, receive the 2020 annual comprehensive financial report and audit findings from RSM. Good evening, Jeremy Wilmoth, finance director. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. I'm going to get us started and then I'll throw it over to uh, Kristen Hughes, who's here from RSM to discuss the audit. Um, the city is required to conduct an annual independent audit of its financial statements every year. The city has utilized RSM uh, to perform the audit for the past three audit schools. And for the fiscal year 2020 audit we're discussing tonight, the city received an unqualified opinion, which is the highest opinion you can receive uh, in an audit. This evening, let me share my screen here. This evening, we're going to be presenting the city's annual comprehensive financial report, have a discussion with the auditors, and then discuss a few highlights from the report. These first couple of slides, I'm not really going to go over. Uh, they're more just for uh, the public's information of where they can find certain information about the audit uh, and the financial statements within the annual comprehensive financial report. These are specific to the governmental funds, and these are specific to the business type activity funds. And with that, I will turn it over to Kristen Hughes, a managing partner with RSM. Good evening, everyone. Um, just confirming you can hear me okay? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, well, thank you to Jeremy for the introduction, uh, and thank you for letting me join you all this evening. Um, as Jeremy noted, I'm going to go through um, some of the audit findings I, uh, and uh, just audit results um, at the conclusion of our audit process as the auditing standards do require of us. Um, just to kind of piggyback off of what Jeremy started with, and I think he's gonna go through a few items um, in what is referred to as the comprehensive annual financial report or the audited financial statements. As you're aware, it is a, a large document. And I think he's done a nice job there in that slide summarizing some of the key points. So just to emphasize a couple of those, as he noted, um, the, the purpose of a financial statement audit is for the audit firm to give an opinion on the financial statements, meaning we opine on whether they are presented in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles as required. As he noted, we did issue the unqualified or unmodified opinion. Those are similar terminology. Um, that's the formal term used by the AICPA, often referred to as the clean opinion. Um, so to echo what he noted, that is the highest opinion uh, that can be issued, that the financial statements are in accordance with GAAP as required. Um, to summarize a couple of those areas in the financials, because again, it is, it is a large document. Um, I think, as he noted, management's discussion analysis, uh, you will see that at the front of the document. We, I usually like to point you there. Um, that is a narrative that management provides that uh, tries to go through and highlight really areas um, specifically in 2020 that were significantly um, maybe variances from 2019 and just offering up explanations as to why. Uh, early in the financials, you'll have your statement of net position and statement of activities. And just to clarify, so that's going to be the city collectively. As you know, you, you budget and you account for individual funds. Um, so those two statements 
are the aggregate impact. They, they combine all of those governmental funds and enterprise funds that are tracked separately um, in the financials as well. So those two pages do give a perspective of the city as a whole. And then as he noted as well, in, on following those, you have individual financial statements are presented for all of the city's funds. Uh, at the front of the document is what's called the major funds. Um, by definition, they they have a specific gef- definition by the GASB, but really they usually represent the city's most significant funds. There is a quantitative criteria. So there at the front of the report, you will see those significant funds, certainly going to include the city's general or operating fund, um, enterprise funds, et cetera. So just to make you aware, again, every fund that is um, tracked by the city has individual balance sheet and income statements included in those in those financials. Uh, the notes, those go through more detailed information, again, meeting disclosure requirements that GAP and GASB provide that have to be followed, but it's, it's more detailed information in areas such as cash and investments, debt, pension plans participating in, um, capital assets, et cetera. Uh, in the back is the statistical section. I usually mention this. It's at the conclusion. It is an unaudited section because you'll see there's a lot of, it, it goes through a variety of topics. Um, it's a financial recap, but it also includes demographic information about the city, operational stats. Um, but I do like to point it out just because it is, it's an area of the financials that most of the schedules do require a 10-year history. So sometimes it's beneficial because you can see trends. Um, while the audited financials are, are just a single year presentation as required, they're going to be a 2020 transactions alone. That unaudited area is at least a 10-year history. So you can see movement in certain revenue collections, outstanding debt, et cetera. So the other uh, couple of documents that are issued as part of the audit, there is the standalone compliance report. So to summarize the content in there, you know, as a reminder, the purpose of a financial statement audit is not to give an opinion on internal controls. And you will see that summarized in those letters. So the purpose of a financial statement audit is to give the opinion on the financials. However, we do take into considerations controls as we're executing the financial statement audit. Standards do require that if we become aware of any material weaknesses or significant deficiencies as a part of the audit, that those are to be communicated to you. Um, In the 2020 compliance report, uh, you will see there was one material weakness reported. Um, You can read through the description, but um, in summary for you, it's it's a deficiency related to um, audit adjustments identified during the process. So again, as, as we go through and perform our testing, adjustments are, were identified um, that were considered quantitative and qualitatively significant to the financials. Um, those have been reflected in the financials. So there are adjustments that are booked by management and reflected in that final audit product. Um, but that was reported as a material weakness, weakness excuse me, uh, simply because those come up as the audit. For some perspective for you, um, that is the only material weakness um, in the 2020 compliance report. Um, you know, again, I'm presenting on the current year results, but again, just for some perspective, I believe the 2019 report um, included four or five material weaknesses and significant deficiencies. Um, and I believe 2018 included uh, three or four. So again, um, perspective, you know, that that does display management's um, efforts towards remediating those controls. So in 2020, they had either completely corrected them or um, some of them may have just been simply downgraded to uh, what we call a control deficiency. So as a reminder, auditing standards, we give deficiencies. There are three levels of deficiency. The highest is going to be material weakness, again, significant deficiency, and then that lowest level is control deficiency. So I know there was at least one where the, the city had 
had addressed by far the large majority of it, so it was downgraded um, to a control deficiency this year. The compliance report, um, as I noted, that was the only material weakness. So as a part of our financial statement audit, because the city does receive and expend more than $750,000 of federal grant expenditures, the city is required to have what's called a single audit each year, which is having the financial statement auditor also specifically do work um, and issue a compliance report on your, on your grant activity. So there were no material weaknesses, significant deficiencies, or instances of non-compliance as it relates uh, specifically to the compliance audit. Um, the city expended, excuse me, almost $12 million in grant expenditures this year. Um, we audit what's referred to as major programs. So we, we do not audit 100% of the grant activity, similar to the financial statement audit. It's done on a sample basis, excuse me. There were three major programs that were selected for testing this year though. It included uh, the CARES funds that the city expended, the airport improvement program and the CBG program. So just for perspective, those, excuse me, I've been battling a cold the last week. Um, <laughs> apologies. Those were the three major programs that we tested this year. So again, no deficiencies or compliance items noted. The last document um, is part of the audit is those required audit communications. So the standards say there are certain topics that we are required to communicate back to you at the conclusion of the audit. Um, the first few pages of that just go through a reminder of the responsibilities we have. So again, a reference to those standards that we're following. It also serves as a reminder for the responsibilities that management has over the accuracy of the financials, as well as the information we're provided as we perform our testing. As part of those um, disclosures, we also like to highlight if there were any new accounting standards that were adopted this year. We like to highlight those just in the event that there's anything new or different in this year's audit report compared to what you might've seen in the prior year. Uh, the city did adopt two new standards, um, no significant impact I would say this year. One was just adding a couple of required disclosures as it relates to debt, but no significant changes this year that changed how anything was really accounted for. Um, Included in the document, as I mentioned, you're provided with a copy of the audit adjustments um, that I mentioned earlier in that deficiency. So you can see the audit adjustments that were posted or proposed by the audit firm during the audit that management agreed and approved and posted in the financials. You'll also see a summary of what we call those uncorrected misstatements. So as a reminder, those are items that come up the, during the audit, but they're immaterial in nature. So management determines um, due to their immateriality, they will not be reflected in the financials. We conclude that that, um, we agree that that conclusion is reasonable again, due to the immateriality in comparison to the financials as a whole. So instead they're summarized in this document and you will see those as well. Last couple items in the, in the packet are, you're just provided with written communications between the firm and management. So that's gonna include that management representation letter um, that is signed at the conclusion of the audit. Again, just confirming that the financials are accurate uh, to the best of the knowledge, obviously, those who were involved in preparing them, as well as, again, that information we were provided with during the course of our audit. Um, last item, and I apologize, I meant to mention this as I went through the report. Uh, the city has historically received the Certificate of Excellence um, issued by the GFOA. So uh, as a reminder, that program, um, the city submits its, its report. Uh, the certificate is based on reporting criteria they have. So they have a specific checklist and reviewers in that program go through and conclude on whether or not the city has included all required disclosures uh, in their financials. And if you meet certain number of criteria within that checklist, you are awarded the certificate. So 
you will see in this year's report, the city was awarded that certificate for the 2019 report. And then they obviously issued the certificate a few months later, but you will see that certificate included for the prior year financial statements. So I'm going to go ahead and pause there and I'm either happy to let Jeremy continue with the presentation or if there's questions any of you have um, specific to the audit, we can get through those now. I'm, I'm fine with either. Are there any questions now? But yeah, actually, I'd like to just weigh in for a minute. Um, Kristen, um, I just want to ask a few questions. The first one has to do with the conduct of the audit. Um, did the city staff provide you with all the information you requested in a timely manner? Yes. Uh, I mean, we work through, obviously, the audit process is a long process. Um, we go through and perform planning in January. Um, it takes the, the city a few months to close their records, and we're on site for several weeks. So, yes, over the course of the audit, um, just so you know, auditing standards would require if we had any uh, difficulties during the audit with management, that that is one of those topics that would be required to be communicated to you. Uh, there were there were no difficulties in getting information or working with management. And you'll see that uh, it really stays silent to that in the letter, to be honest, because there were no difficulties encountered. I appreciate hearing that, Kristen. Um, I think that's important for, for everybody. Um, the second point is to just kind of highlight that this is a clean opinion, correct? Correct. So as I mentioned, the clean opinion means that the financials are presented in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles or GAAP as required uh, with no material misstatements identified. Thank you. Um, last question is, um, and I believe you were involved in the 2018 audit, which is the first audit that RSM did. Um, what improvements, if any, has the city made in financial reporting since 2018? Um, well, I probably piggyback off the what I noted earlier. Um, you know, again, we the purpose of the audit is to give an opinion on the financial statements. That is that is the purpose of a financial statement audit. Um, and in each year, in those three years, the city has received a clean opinion. Um, but what I did mention earlier were, um, again, while we don't give an opinion on internal controls, we do have that responsibility that if we become aware of material weaknesses and significant deficiencies, that those are reported to you. And as I noted, um, when you compare the, the one material weakness being reported this year uh, compared to the number reported in 2018 and 2019, um, you know, again, I guess that I would describe that as a measure that you could follow as far as improvements made um, in management's processes. Are there any other improvements you could point to? Um, yeah, you know, I guess another suggestion I would have, well, I know you don't have the 2018 documents in front of you. One of the things that tied to the, the, the deficiency is, again, those number of audit adjustments. And I think as each of those three years has gone by, if you, you're, you're provided with a list of all of those, if you were to compare those two listings, I'm I'm pretty confident the the number, uh, while they were still material this year, there's just the, the quantity of items coming up during the audit has continued to decrease each of those three years. I'm, I'm happy to let Jeremy speak more to that when he when he picks up the presentation, but I think that's what you'll find in those documents going back to the last three years. Thank you very much, Kristen. Any other questions this time? Uh, so I think maybe we'll let Jeremy, you ready to carry on? Jeremy Wilmoth, Finance Director. Thank you very much, Kristen. Get this going here again, okay. So if you're like me, you have this big document in front of you and you're like, great, what does it mean? Um, so what I wanted to do is try to come up with 
uh, just a handful of slides to help the public uh, get an understanding for just, you know, what is our fiscal condition? You know, we have a clean audit, uh, the financial reports have, have been presented, but, but what does it mean? And so uh, the first thing that I would point to is uh, unrestricted net position. And um, net position is a fancy accounting term that basically means the difference between uh, assets and liabilities. Um, once you have that net position, then there's classifications of net positions, such as what you've invested in assets and what's been restricted for other purposes, such as debt or capital projects that have uh, been funded but not yet uh, finished. So when you uh, boil all of those things down, then you have what's considered unrestricted net position. And these would really be the, um, the amount of government resources that are available for any activity, uh, either within the governmental type of service or the business type of service. And so you'll see that on the governmental side, we had negative uh, unrestricted net position in 2016, and we have it again in 2020. Um, I would call this a uh, paper negative rather than like a, a true cause for concern. Um, one of the things governments are required to do is uh, report the uh, ongoing liability for pension and other post-employment benefits. And so as those numbers increase, um, it's not a what we would consider a traditional um, drain on resources. Those are budgeted and paid for annually. Uh, but this is that ongoing residual balance uh, to, to just show what the outstanding liability is uh, for the government. And so uh, it's it's not uncommon to have years where uh, the, the overall net position for the governmental unit is negative. On the business type activity, uh, we have essentially the same thing. These are the combined uh, uh, unrestricted net assets um, for the water fund, the solid waste fund, the parking fund, um, and the um, golf course at this time. And you see there's really not a lot of change uh, from 19 to 20. But one of the things that um, I think might help the public is, you know, what are those things that could cause net position to either increase or decrease? And so um, just try to give you not an exhaustive list, but just a list of a few things that traditionally you would see if expenses were greater than revenue um, on, a, on a gap basis, government um, generally accepted accounting principles basis, then th those uh, are reasons why net position would decrease over time. As is the case for our city, it's increases in pension liabilities, um, but there'd also be increases in bonds payable with no offsetting assets. This could occur if the city were to issue long-term debt, but not for a capital project for a different reason. Uh, we would have that debt, but we wouldn't have an offsetting asset uh, to count against it, and that could cause a negative uh, net position. Other things that cause negative uh, net position would be things such as depreciation uh, or, uh, or expenses exceeding revenues, as I mentioned earlier. And then those things that um, you would generally see increasing net position would obviously be revenues over expenses, um, capital outlay funded by grants, which um, Kristen mentioned earlier, uh, we had received $12 million of capital fund, or not capital funding, excuse me, grant funding, of which the lion's share of that is capital. Um, which would help because then you would have an asset with no off, uh, outstanding debt uh, tied to it. 
Um, so other things would be surplus revenues or unspent reserves uh, that it could be used to, be, to pay down liabilities in future years. So looking just at governmental funds, um, this is the history of the available fund balance, which would, it's slightly different than net position, but it, the uh, formula is essentially the same that you're looking at. Um, after all has been said and done, what does the fund have right now collectively? And you see, we've seen uh, fairly significant growth in uh, the availability of fund balance uh, over the last several years. These are predominantly due to the uh, issuance of long-term debt uh, as I mentioned earlier, and then those capital projects uh, taking multiple years um, to finish. So we would get the cash on the front end, and then uh, years later, uh, as the uh, project is being finalized, then that cash gets spent down. And that's really what you're seeing in the reduction of fund balance from 19 to 20, um, the significant capital outlay that was uh, invested in the police facility. So looking at page 16 of the annual financial report, uh, this is comparing all cash available to the government at $167.6 million. Current liabilities would be anything the government owes in less than one year at 89.4 million, showing that our current cash covers our current liabilities by 87.3%. Uh, so um, this is more of what I would consider a benchmark. It, it's just, um, providing assurances that the city has uh, adequate cash to cover its current obligations. And then looking historically, here would be the cash uh, and investments for 16 through uh, 20, the fiscal years, and then the liabilities. You'll note a rather large increase in liabilities from 19 to 20. And this is really the temporary note that was issued for the police facility. Um, it's showing in our 2020 financial position as an obligation due in one year. Of course, we know that uh, in 2021, we turned this into long-term debt. Uh, so it would no longer be considered a current liability, but is a long-term liability. And looking just at the governmental funds, comparing revenues to expenditures, you'll notice the peaks in uh, 17 and 19 um, and the footnote at the bottom highlighting the large amounts of uh, debt that was issued that year. So those are capital funds that are uh, creating those peaks. And this next slide is um, showing several uh, components to the property tax. First, you'll note the uh, large blue box is assessed valuation. In um, assessed valuation grew 6% in 2017 and then grew 5% both in 18 and 19 and 4% in 2020. And as you know, uh, the current uh, assessed valuation projection is 2.47%. So we're really seeing assessed valuation over time starting to smooth out and not have the uh, large increases that we've uh, seen in prior years. So looking just at the general fund, the left side of this chart is essentially that same cash analysis showing that uh, our current cash is 22.8 million. Expenses uh, in, the, in the fiscal year 2020 was uh, just over 77 million. And so if you take that and divide it by 365, then uh, we essentially have 3.56 months 
of expenses cash on hand. The uh, other side of that is showing revenue and expenses for the entire uh, year. And our revenues were 75.09 million. Our expenses were 77, pardon me. Our expenses were 77.0 or 77.1 million, excuse me. So we actually uh, had a loss in 2020 of just uh, over 1.9 million. I think uh, a lot of people can understand that with the uh, shutdowns that we experienced throughout 2020, um, our sales taxes, our, our liquor taxes, uh, various taxes, all experienced uh, declines. And so that attributes for the 2.64% uh, loss. So looking at the general fund over the last uh, five years, the green line at the top is revenue. The uh, blue bar is unassigned fund balance and the red bar is cash. And uh, one thing you'll note is that cash was increasing fairly uh, consistently in 16, 17, 18, and 19. And then we saw that reduction in cash in 20 uh, due to the pandemic. Uh, you'll also note that fund balance has uh, been staying around uh, that $25 million uh, figure. Um, and the footnote at the bottom is just a reminder that the city's fund balance policy requires 90 days of cash, which if you took the expenditures from the previous slide, uh, divided by 365, multiplied by 90, that would equal 19.26 million, uh, which would leave actual cash available for uh, operations of 3.6 million in the general fund. And so this next slide is just looking at the revenues to the general fund over the last five years by category, as you can see, uh, taxes are the lion's share of the general fund's revenue. The um, taxes, which would be property taxes, sales taxes, and franchise fees, comprise 77% of all general fund revenue. Taxes grew by 7% uh, from 2017, 4% uh, in 2018, 3% in 2019, and less than 1% in 2020. This next slide is looking at the expenditures in the general fund. As you can see, public safety is the largest uh, expenditure in uh, the general fund. Public safety comprises 63% of all general fund investment. And it, uh, it grew by 18% in 2017, but I really believe that was a shift. Um, I believe there were some uh, positions that were classified in the uh, city manager's office that were moved to uh, the police department. Um, and that's why you see general government dropping and public safety increasing uh, from 2016 to 2017. But if you look at just 2018, um, there was 6% growth. In 2019, there was 5% growth. And in 2020, there was 8% growth. And so now looking at the water sewer fund, another one of our major funds, uh, you can see that we have 23.3 million in cash. The expenses in uh, 2020 were just over 49 million. So again, if you take those expenses, divide by 365, put that toward the cash, we have 5.71 months of cash um, available. Looking at the revenues and the expenses, uh, again, the, the city basically broke even. Uh, we had a net gain of about $569,000 of revenue uh, over expenses. 
apologize. So looking um, at a similar chart to the general fund, but for the water and sewer fund, you can see the uh, revenue is the gray line at the top. Cash available for operations is the orange line. And then the unrestricted net position is the blue line. And we've been seeing uh, consistent uh, growth in the unrestricted net position, which is really what the um, Moody's investment uh, and others are really interested in, in terms of debt. So by continuing to increase our unrestricted net position, we uh, better our um, fiscal outlook for the uh, rating agencies, which helps lower our overall borrowing cost. However, if you take the cash that's currently available, the 23.3, and you back out the uh, fund balance policy of 250 days, which is 21.49 million, that really just leaves cash available for operations of 1.8 million to stay within our policy. And the last slide I have tonight is just looking at debt uh, overall. The uh, general obligation debt is predominantly funded by the mill levy. Um, there is a, a little bit of general, general obligation debt that's funded by uh, the water rates and uh, solid waste, uh, but the, the lion's share of it is uh, the mill levy. The temporary notes are also funded by the mill levy, and then the revenue bonds are uh, solely funded by water and sewer rates. And so you can see that over the last uh, number of years, we've been slowly lowering our um, debt portfolio, um, primarily because we knew that the police facility was coming. And as you know, in 2021 and in 2020, 2022, excuse me, uh, we'll be converting both of those temporary notes into uh, long-term general obligation debt, which will obviously then increase the general obligation overall debt for the city. On the revenue bond side, we have some significant uh, water and wastewater projects that we're also starting to pay off uh, old debt for to make room within our current um, rate structure to, uh, to help uh, cover those expenses as well. So those are all of the slides I provided uh, or prepared for this evening. I hope that provides a little bit of um, background into where the city sat at uh, 1231, 2020. A lot of this was uh, covered in the budget uh, presentation we made a few weeks ago, but I'd be happy to answer any questions you all may have. Are there questions for Jeremy? So Jeremy, could you explain the water and silver? I'm sorry, you're maybe it's my machine, but I'm I'm not hearing you very well. Is this the slide you were talking about? Yeah, that's the slide. Can you explain the that fund balance policy that requires two hundred fifty days of cash? Why Sure. Um Jeremy Wilman, finance director. <clears throat> The water and uh, wastewater fund would be what we would consider to be a volatile fund because it is so much dependent upon uh, weather and use. Um, and so it is prudent um, in utility, um, long-term planning to have rainy day funds to help uh, weather those storms. Um, there's also a component of the 250 days that is there for um, Debt reserve isn't the right term, but essentially it, 
it's what Moody's likes to see um, strong utilities that uh, aren't at risk for defaulting on their debt, having uh, the ability to um, have strong balances. And so uh, as we discussed the fund balance policy earlier this year, 250 days was a, um, an agreement that uh, we had with uh, Raftilis in uh, conjunction with our um, municipal finance advisor uh, to ensure that we had an adequate cash reserve uh, that would satisfy the bondholders and the rating agencies as they continue to look at our uh, current debt and future debt issuances. Um, Jeremy, could you talk a little bit about the difference between a bond rate for the uh, general obligation debt and the uh, revenue bonds? In terms of what the ratings are? Sure. Uh, Jeremy Willman, finance director. I don't have those uh, ratings off the top of my head. I apologize. But uh, our, our two ratings are fairly similar. Um, the, uh, the general obligation rating is uh, predominantly based on the fact that we're a uh, strong uh, town and college community um, with a, a wide tax base. Those are all things that Moody's considers to uh, be in our favor. Um, really, the only downside that the city of Lawrence has in the eyes of um, the investment community is something that we just have no control over and that's that we're in the Midwest and the Midwest is seen as a smaller market. Um, on the revenue side, they're really concerned about how much revenue we're generating in excess of expenditures. Um, so that, that margin um, in our, uh, in our actual debt issuances, we guarantee a 1.2% coverage, meaning after all of our operating expenses have been paid, um, we have 120% of what we owe in debt service for that fiscal year in, in revenue. Um, and so that's one of the key drivers uh, to the revenue model or the rate model, excuse me, uh, and, the, and the need to increase rates year over year is to uh, ensure that we can keep um, the city's ability to borrow long-term um, at, at the lowest uh, cost possible. Thank you, Jerry. All right, well, thank you, uh, Jeremy. And I would also like to thank RSM. I, I maybe I would like to clarify um, that was three years with them. Um, so now our, our policy, if I recall, is that we rotate our auditors to keep fresh eyes on it, which is very wise. And so alas, we may not see Kristen again. So thank you very much for helping us uh, load these many years. I guess, you know, I'd like to clarify if there are plans to rotate or if we're going to continue with RSM for another year or two or so. Jeremy Wilma, finance director. Um, Commissioner Shipley, you are correct that um, the original RFP was for three years, but there were some um, options to renew. And so um, given the difficulties that the finance uh, department had in 2018 and in 2019, we really feel like um, to get a really good understanding of, of our financial position, 
um, changing auditors now would essentially be starting over. So we're going to recommend that we keep RSM at least through the 2021, if not 2022, but that would be the last year. And then we would absolutely um, go back out with another RFP in, in 2022 at the latest. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, I think we might need to open this up for public comment. Is there anyone here who'd like to speak on the audit? Hi, uh, Phil Engelhart, and I. The, the slide that's up there, uh, believe, yeah, that's the one that relates to, to this this material. Uh, I abstracted this from the tenure report, and I appreciate uh, the efforts that were put together, particularly the historical efforts, and maybe. You know, my abstract and, and what I've done isn't, you know, it's certainly not sophisticated and maybe it's not even close enough to be incorrect to be or be to be valid. But when I look at at the uh, the, the total expenses and put them on a per cap basis, as shown, you know, in in the report, I see what what appears in this graphic here and what I take away from it, what I want the commission to consider is in particular, you know, the, the increases in total expenses and the rate of increases so that when decisions are made moving forward that, that we recognize that we appear to have, you know, increasing total expenses both on the general government side and on the business enterprise side that exceed inflation, which has all sorts of implications for the kind of decisions that you all are going to be making on capital budgets, you know, uh, and so forth. All kinds of implications on with respect to to the CIP. And I hope that you'll take those kind of things into account as you make those decisions. Thank you very much. Uh, anyone else in the audience? Sherry, do we see anybody um, on Zoom that's interested in speaking on this item? Sorry, just one second. If there's anyone on Zoom who would like to provide public comment on this item, please use the raise hand function, or you can turn on your video and raise your hand. Uh, there's no comment, Vice Mayor. Thank you very much. Um, any any further comments or discussion, commissioners? And I believe we're just receiving this, so we don't need to vote on that. Uh, good. Um, thank you again to everyone who worked on that. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. Um, let's move on to number two, item number two: discuss the right of way management program and direct staff as appropriate. We'll share my my screen. Uh, so good evening, uh, Vice Mayor Shipley uh, and commissioners. Uh, my name is Enrico Viegas, and I'm the uh, right-of-way program administrator uh, with the Municipal Services and Operations Department. 
Um, and I, I did want to note that I appreciated the uh, proclamation for the 811. Um, it's just kind of good timing uh, that that proclamation was also the same day as the presentation. <laughs> um, so uh, kind of going on with, uh, with the agenda, excuse me. Um, so the agenda will be uh, broken into two parts. Uh, so the first part is to uh, provide information uh, that was requested uh, from the commission at, at various commission meetings in the past. Um, and then to also discuss some proposed changes um, to the city code, um, in particular, chapter 16, articles eight and nine, and the right-of-way administrative regulations uh, that govern uh, the right-of-way. Um, and so with that, I will uh, uh, formally ask at at least two points in the presentation um, after part one is concluded um, to ask if there are any questions, um, if you'd like to kind of engage in dialogue or wait until part two. Um, part two, there's only two slides, um, but the commission is also free to ask questions at any point, um, but I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, <laughs> as part of that, there's uh, no action that would be expected tonight. Um, other than to uh, really direct staff as, um, uh, as appropriate. Um, so I'll move to the, the gist of the meeting. Um, so the outline for part one, um, these were some of the, uh, uh, the main points um, that staff pulled from those uh, past meetings. Um, the commission uh, wanted to know more about the right-of-way licensing agreement requirements. Um, and there was a desire uh, by the commission to uh, look at uh, potential exemptions, um, possibly potential charges for them. Um, uh, there was statements made on um, exempting uh, residential private landowners from uh, requiring uh, right-of-way permits, or at least trying to alleviate some burden in some capacity. Um, and then uh, right-of-way program charges. Um, and there was uh, an emphasis on wanting to learn more about the fines. Um, I, I will state up front that the, uh, um, the potential charges for the licensing agreement um, is a little tricky, um, and that will be something that we need a little bit more uh, commission guidance on, uh, or just to make sure we're on the right track um, and really have a good discussion on that. Um, and the uh, exemptions for the, uh, the residential uh, landowners, um, that will be discussed more in part two. Uh, so the general purpose of the licensing agreement um, as it's uh, practiced today is to satisfy the city code. Um, and it also kind of functions as a uh, formal acknowledgement um, between the property owner um, and the city um, that the city will not generally compensate um, for any damages to those uh, facilities that would be installed in the right of way. Um, or if the, those facilities needed to be uh, relocated or removed um, for whatever reason um, that the city would not pay for that. Um, and then also uh, that agreement gets filed with the Douglas County Register of Deeds um, uh, with that specific property. Um, that way future homeowners are uh, made aware of that agreement um, or can at least be aware. Um, and so, uh, and kind of going back to uh, looking at the potential exemptions, um, city staff uh, was able to come up with a list of things that we thought would be most appropriate um, that could fall under uh, those potential exemptions. Um, this list was shared with uh, 
uh, numerous contractors, builders, um, and other professional organizations like the Lawrence Home Builders Association. Um, and there was a general consensus that they felt that um, this was a good list. Um, and so uh, I won't be reading everything here, um, but I can always reference back to this slide if you would like. Um, while the, there would be an exemption um, to the, uh, the right-of-way agreement requirement, um, staff feels that it would still be important to have a right-of-way permit. Um, and there would be certain, unless certain conditions are met, um, and that would be more in the part two of this. Um, but very generally, um, sorry, I'll make it bigger. Uh, very generally, this is kind of what we're, um, what staff is uh, um, proposing. Um, so one, so getting into the, uh, the charges um, for the licensing agreement, um, staff has uh, come up with at least two options or like two lenses by which um, those could be viewed. Um, so one would be to assess an annual fee or other charge for commercial and industrial applicants. Um, and this would also stand um, in line with how our uh, city code and uh, admit right away administrative regulations are written um, that we would alleviate um, that annual fee on residential owners. Um, and again, with uh, would also comply with some affordable housing initiatives. Um, so there would be the annual fee approach or um, assess a flat uh, one-time fee that would be uniform across the board. Um, again, for the commercial um, and industrial applicants. Um, the, the one thing to note is that we, we don't have what that proposed fee would be. Um, there would still be some analysis and vetting internally on that, but this is at least proposing con conceptually um, what, what we're thinking. Um, and obviously we're open to uh, um, commissioner suggestions on that. Uh, and then in addition, um, staff uh, does not recommend um, an outright exemption of certain types of work um, from the requirements of the right-of-way permit. Um, so some justifications um, that the current status of the program um, we would like for it to be maintained as competitively neutral, uh, meaning that everyone would be held to the same standards, um, you know, having good traffic control in place, um, that the general safety measures are being met, um, and, and also the accountability factor. Um, so I, moving on to um, charges. Uh, the right-of-way program does have a fairly robust um, fee to fine um, schedule. Uh, so it starts generally with the permit fee, um, and then depending on the scope and complexity of the uh, of the permit request, um, additional fees could be applied, such as an inspections fee, um, or if it's primarily suited in downtown, then there would be a parking reservation fee. Um, and then it, in terms of fines, um, our administrative regulations, um, you know, allow for either a $50 up to a $250 fine for noncompliance. Um, that could be for failing to have a right-of-way permit um, or um, working with improper traffic control or no traffic control, um, something like that. 
Um, and then fines, uh, some of the bigger ones could be either 1,000 to 2,500 for a municipal offense. Um, a municipal offense could be um, working without a uh, right-of-way permit. Um, and that, that's kind of more governed in code. Um, and then finally, there's the uh, miscellaneous. Um, it, it, the miscellaneous section of this is more um, if in the event that there was a failure on the contractor to restore the right-of-way in as good of condition or better, um, or if, if the, uh, within the warranty inspection process of the permit, um, if the contractor had to remove um, sidewalk and then that sidewalk failed within that one-year period, um, and we wanted to pursue um, the contractor to repair that and they chose not to, um, this is where that administrative overhead fee would be, where it'd be the cost of the permit plus 25%. Um, and then the city would just pay a contractor um, to uh, fix that portion of whatever, whatever it was that needed to be repaired. Um, so there's that. Um, and I, this is the end of part one. Um, so if the commission has uh, any questions or if they would like for me to proceed, um, part two is only two slides. Um, so it's really up to uh, the commission. Anyone? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, so some of the proposed changes, um, again, these uh, proposed changes were shared with, uh, you know, the builders, contractors, um, utility companies, et cetera. Um, so kind of in a verbatim form, um, one proposed change um, would be that new residential construction um, and or residential remodels um, would be exempt from the right-of-way permitting requirements. Um, if and only if there is an active and valid building permit. Um, we, we do, staff does see that there's some efficiency gain in doing that. Um, and also kind of supporting some of those affordable housing initiatives. Um, number two, uh, work that only affects uh, pedestrian, pedestrian traffic um, will not be required to submit uh, separate traffic control permits or separate permits, sorry. Um, number three, um, roll-off dumpsters will not be required to have a right-of-way permit um, outside of the downtown area. Uh, number four, um, the licensing agreement exceptions, which was covered in uh, part one. And then one accidental omission, um, there should be a number five on here. Um, the number five uh, would be uh, that city crews um, would not, there wouldn't be the need uh, for city crews to apply for a class three permit, just a traffic control permit. Um, some of the logic there is that for our internal uh, Lucidity asset management system, um, that's where the crews generate those work orders. That's already being tracked, kind of like it would be our right-of-way system. Um, so it's kind of a duplicated effort, um, but that's where some of that, some of the logic is coming from there. Um, and so the next slide is kind of a, a, a matrix to help explain um, what, what staff is looking at in terms of the residential construction. Um, so as it currently stands, um, all of the activities here, um, the new residential construction, the building remodel, et cetera, um, those require building permits. Um, and then currently where applicable, um, a right-of-way permit may be required. Um, so staff is proposing that 
for any new residential construction, whether infill or greenfield, whatever, um, would not would not be required to have a right of way permit, um, and it could, and all that work could be covered under the building permit. Um, in particular, um, utility tie-ins, driveways, irrigation systems, um, a building remodel um, exclusive to residential um, would function the same. A building addition um, would not. Um, so think uh, a if a homeowner is building a deck in their backyard and it really doesn't have anything to do with the right-of-way um, or if they're extending a patio or enclosing their patio or whatever, um, that staff did feel that there could be a potential for abuse um, in trying to do multiple things um, with that one permit. Um, and then any non-residential construction um, would not be covered under this. Um, so with that, um, kind of a short, uh, short presentation, um, but I'll uh, stand for questions. So the way I understand this is that landscapers, if they're putting in sprinkler system or something right away, they still be required to write a permit if there is no building permit at all. Is that Commissioner Larson, this is Enrico, uh, MSO. Um, I, I can't hear you very well. I, I apologize for that. So my question was, I just want to make sure I understand um, what is the proposal here. And that is that um, the like, landscape that is installing frequent systems in the right of way, that they would still be required to get if there is no building involved, is that correct? Okay, yes, that would be correct. Uh, Enrico Villegas, uh, program administrator. So has, has there been, Enrico, has there been any consideration for possibly looking at having landscapers be licensed through our, through our licensing program? Which is like the class four license versus the right process. What this is Enrico Villegas, a program administrator. Uh, Commissioner Larson, was the question um, of being able to expand the class four permit to be included? Uh, with the landscapers, I, I, I'm sorry. It's just it, it feels like you're really far away. Sorry about that. So my question was uh, whether or not there was any consideration. Or could there be any consideration for including landscapers as part of the Class Four um, licensing um, companies? And then that would essentially hold them accountable because that was one of the one of the things that you um, wanted was being able to hold somebody accountable for issues. So if they were licensed in the in the city of Lawrence, then that would hold them accountable for the quality of their work. And so my my question is 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 that something that could be considered versus having to get a right of way permit for things such as in the right of way doing. Um, 
sprinkler systems or any landscaping in, within the right of way. Okay, I, I can hear you now. Thank you, um, en Enrico Viegas, uh, program administrator. Um, so it, we we do have a a class four permit um, that's considered like a general um, maintenance permit, uh, more like a blanket permit that a um, a contractor could apply for. Um, and so that would cover um, any of the maintenance activities um, that they would perform throughout the year. Um, so if, for example, a, um, a landscaping company uh, needed to maintain a sprinkler system, whether it's replacing heads or winterizing it or maintaining um, you know, a retaining wall or repointing some natural stone, whatever the case may be, um, we did offer that. Um, to uh, uh, to the contractors that that would be available to them to do those maintenance activities without the need of applying for multiple separate permits. Um, so it would just be one that would cover that maintenance work. So landscapers can apply for that? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, they could, yeah. And that, would that eliminate the need to get a right-of-way permit for installation of, of, of equipment within the right-of-way? Um, it would only uh, eliminate the need for um, applying for a separate permit for something that's already existing. Um, but if they needed to apply for um, a new install, wh whatever that new install would be, then they would just apply for a right-of-way permit for that. Um, but then as soon as that is installed, then if they ever needed to go back and perform maintenance, that's that class four would come in. So they wouldn't need to apply for multiple permits. So in order to do maintenance on that equipment, would they have to be licensed under the class four? They would not. Thank you. Any other questions? Uh, if that's all our questions. Let's uh, do some public comment. I think there's some people who are anxious to speak with us tonight. Good evening. My name is Bobby Flory, and I'm with the Lawrence Home Builders Association. Um, I'd like to start by thanking Enrico Viegas for making so many opportunities available to us to give input and to understand what the proposal is from MSO. We support staff's recommendation to exempt single-family duplex and remodels from right-of-way permitting if there is an active permit. This is a great example of reviewing the existing regulations to see if we can reduce costs and regulation without compromising safety or the intent of the regulations. So we're very pleased that this is happening. This is, um, this is great coordination between planning and development services and MSO. So we appreciate the effort and the work of staff to put this together. The only additional suggestion that we would have uh, in addition to encouraging you to move forward with this recommendation is to add landscaping to the exemption um, for the right-of-way permit for the installation of, um, of uh, what sprinklers and also for plantings in the right-of-way. And um, that's something that is a, um, there are some landscapers here that will probably go into more detail about that, but we, we believe that the intent is um, that they would not compromise the safety, and that would be another opportunity to reduce the cost to the homeowner. So with that, I would um, 
ask you to please move forward with this recommendation. Uh, my name is Frank Mayo. I'm uh, with Lawrence Landscape. <clears throat> and uh, forgive me because I'm reading my own notes, so <laughs> it'll be a struggle. Uh, first of all, I wanted to, to uh, thank Enrico for reaching out to the green industry professionals in Lawrence, uh, Lawrence Home Builders Association and other stakeholders uh, concerning the right-of-way permit issue. He has done more outreach in the last four months than I've seen in, in uh, 20 years of, of uh, interacting with city government. And so for that, he's to be commended and uh, it's appreciated. And uh, so, and we're also appreciative of uh, being exempted from the, the licensing agreement uh, uh, for the right-of-way permits on residential projects that are in an active building permit. Now, this is just uh, dealing with uh, uh, a licensing agreement is having the homeowner sign uh, a document uh, and then having it come to the city commission and then uh, signed by the uh, notarized and then signed by the, the uh, city manager, um, which is onerous. And so uh, having that exempted uh, when there is a uh, active permit is, is appreciated, appreciated and uh, saves a lot of headaches for all concerned. Through the Zoom meetings uh, with staff and phone conversations with Enrico, the question was asked, what problems are being solved by having green industry contractors for a class three right-of-way permit? They really boiled down to uh, temporary traffic control and having to do with sidewalks and having enforcement capabilities. Uh, as you saw in the presentation, penalties set forth in the right-of-way program, fines are uh, a minimum of $1,000, and that could be daily. So it seems ex excessive. I, I learned in the Enrico's presentation that there's a, a, a lesser uh, offense fine, but uh, I didn't know that in advance. Uh, as an alternative, I reached out to Lawrence Police Department and was able to visit with Lieutenant Myron Grady, who mentioned that there are already statutes available to the Lawrence Police Department regarding uh, safe travel on sidewalks. These are handled on a complaint basis, and that, uh, and I believe that that solves Enrico's concerns about uh, if you think of, realistically, if you think of people uh, having an issue on the sidewalk, are they going to call the city? Are they going to call a police department? And uh, I, I think that's going to be the answer. They'll, they'll call the police department saying, hey, you know, it's something uh, isn't quite right. And so uh, I think there's an enforcement mechanism already in place. And uh, Lieutenant Byron Brady also said that, that uh, you know, common sense prevails and, and de-escalation. I'm sorry, your time. Could you finish your thought? You bet. Uh, so I, I think uh, that solves Enrico's major concern. Uh, my proposal is that the green industry be exempted from the right-of-way permits for all single-family duplex townhomes and residential dwellings. It has not been shown that the green industry contractors are causing problems. It seems that the solution is in search of a problem. Forcing these regulations, as written once again, raises the cost of living in Lawrence, increases red tape, and increases the workload of city staff with no appreciable results. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Frank.
Hi, I'm Chris Berger. Just to kind of set the table a little bit, this began a couple of years ago when fiber companies were talking about coming to town and frankly, just pushing their will upon the city with regard to right-of-way, which is generally set aside for utilities. So this was put forward um, and everyone viewed it in the context of a utility coming through specifically fiber and assurances were given that, you know, no one, no, no one's home would be affected, uh, as well as we note that uh, there would be no full-time employees hired as a result of this. That's in the memo, and that was what was approved. Everyone who owns a home, they own their land to the road, and actually to the middle of the road in fee simple, meaning they own it entirely, but the city has taken a right-of-way on it so that they have an easement that allows them to put a road or sort similar appurtenance. Having that fee simple interest means property owners are allowed to use that land for any purpose that they want that doesn't interfere with the road. The way this is being implemented now is in effect taking that control away from property owners. Those property owners are now subject to the permission of the city to do things like plant shrubs, put in a driveway, uh, irrigation systems, a variety of improvements that should affect the positive net value of their homes. An onerous process has been put in place, admittedly perhaps intentional, so that actions of Google Fiber and the like would have been a little more difficult, but it's being implemented against private citizens. And the fines are excessive, $2,000 per violation per day. So if I plant 10 shrubs and I don't have a permit, that's 10 violations each day. Would perform a lien judgment against me, $20,000 a day. Ridiculous. You know, under the context of fiber, I can kind of get it. With residences, that's terrible. Not to mention increasing the cost to everyone. So... I love the suggestions that are being made. I think they're the right approach to fix the situation. I would also ask that you go ahead and make it very clear that there shall be no fines, no penalties against residential properties, period. And expressly stating that there shall be no lien or no encumbrance placed upon any of those residences as a result of any alleged violation. So thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else in the audience who would like to speak to this item? Or uh, anyone on Zoom uh, who's in, who would like to speak for three minutes? Is there anyone participating via Zoom that would like to provide comment on this item? There's no more public comment. I see. Thank you very much. Um, let's uh, bring it back to the commission. Yeah, um, I was wondering if staff could speak to some of the issues that were brought up by the public speakers, um, especially the fine part as to why the fines are what they are and whether or not that is, is, is a need. 
this is a Enrico Viegas program administrator. Um, so one thing that in, in speaking with our uh, building officials, um, when it came in particular to landscaping, is that uh, more often than not, those were getting installed after the CO of the building. Um, so it's no longer an active building permit. Um, and in addition, there are would be some safeguards to having the right of way permits still in place, um, such as if you're at an intersection, um, you'd want to be assured that uh, the plantings or vegetation would not exceed three feet in height um, to create some uh, site distance issues. Um, so um, that was at least some of the logic in talking about landscaping. Um, and then some of the some of the fines, um, I want to pull it up here. Um, so excuse me, I'm grabbing the, the slide. I'm going to reshare my screen just so we can be looking at the same thing. So it in practice, um, how these are how these are being applied um, to date, um, we have not. Um, pursued the municipal offense option that is kind of governed in codes. Um, we've pursued more of, of the what is offered in the administrative regulations. Considering that the right-of-way program is still new, as uh, denoted by some of the speakers, um, verbal warnings have been effective. Um, and if they haven't, um, either you know stopping work or issuing um, some of these smaller fines have also um, been productive um, in kind of curbing uh, that non-conforming behavior. Um, but it, it should be noted that the, uh, that the fines that are offered in the, the right-of-way program are steeper uh, than other fines offered, um, you know, say for our, our building officials, for example, those aren't as steep. Um, so I, I did want to, um, throw that out there. Um, so I, I believe those were some of the kind of the major points that were brought out from the speakers. Um, so if, if there are any more questions from the commission, I'll stop sharing my screen. I guess given that information, it does concern me that they're so high for property owners and residential property owners. It seems excessive, especially Enrico, when you're saying that that they are higher than some other fines that we have for for development the development community. So I would be interested in having staff take a retake a look at that. Anyone else? Um, I have a question, Enrico. Um, my recollection in my younger days was that everyone commonly understood that if you were fool enough to build something in the city redway and it got torn up under the uh, just the course of business curbs or whatever, that the city wasn't responsible for it. Um, and I, I'm not aware that that wasn't working. Um, was there litigation? What, 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 what led to this level of severity with um, residential owners? So some of that um, I'll have to um, ask some of my uh, department management to kind of weigh in on. 
Um, but it was shared with me that um, uh, there was at least a practice historically that um, the city was paying for damage to irrigation systems or whatever the case may be throughout the course of like a city project. Um, so I don't know all of the details, um, but just very generally, that's what I know. Thank you for that. Um, uh, so I, I, I do realize that there's just a very narrow area where it seems like um, landscapers wouldn't be able to carry on kind of in, in that tradition. And I was, I'm a little interested in, um, you said that city crews won't need a class three permit. Um, can you help me um, reconcile that with the need for other people to have a class four or a class three permit? Yes, so uh, one, we, we have a, an internal kind of asset management system right now. Um, it's called Lucidity. Um, so Lucidity is where our internal crews would generate work orders to make repairs, um, whether water lines, sanitary sewers, street, curb, whatever. Um, so a lot of that, what the function, the functionality of the right-of-way permit is really to track those things um, just for external. But internal, since we have our own tracking system, Lucidity, um, the one thing that um, would, is still really beneficial for everyone um, is what the traffic control plan is. So that traffic control plan is reviewed um, and analyzed for how does that affect transit, um, how does that affect emergency services, et cetera. Um, so it would, it's almost like a, a duplicated effort um, by having stuff live in Lucidity and then also having stuff live in um, our right-of-way permitting system. Um, so it was, it was more of a uh, just in a general efficiency cleanup. Any other comments? No, I would like to gauge the interest by the commission to have staff relook at these, this fining system that they've put together as to whether or not it could be modified to be um, a little bit more, what I would think reasonable. Yeah, it's interesting that um, uh, I believe he said it's considerably more than in another department, or I'm sorry, did you say in planning? Wouldn't we want it to be kind of consistent? Can you give some examples of some of those other fees? Yes. Uh, so say... Um, uh, I'll, I'll use the lane use fee. Um, if an applicant applies for a right-of-way permit and in the right-of-way permit, they denote that they need to um, cut the street on a collector or an arterial street, um, that in order to encourage um, the, in order to encourage the contractor to pull their traffic control quicker, or finish the job sooner, um, the lane use fee is applied to those collector or arterial streets um, that uh, it carries on a, on a footage basis of how you know, big the cut is, how long the traffic control is um, for that work zone. Um, so then those fees will be applied 
um, for a lane use and inspection fee, et cetera. Um, and then for the, the parking reservation fee, um, if someone were to request um, a reservation of meters in downtown, um, they would pay for the permit fee, um, a parking setup fee, um, which is just like a, um, a reservation sign that says these signs are, or these meters are reserved. Um, and then there's a, a per day charge for those meters. Um, again, to encourage um, faster turnover in the downtown parking. Um, so hopefully that, that helps with those fees. Um, I can get into a little more detail if you would like. I guess um, I'm hearing the attention, particularly around the lane closure fee, is to discourage that from taking very long or being excessive. Um, this seems more like a um, just an avoidance of engaging in this without permission because those fees are somewhat exorbitant. Um, and, and applying that to residential seems one way and applying that to commercial seems a different way if they're professionally engaging in that right of way versus, you know, a neighbor planting a shrub without being aware of the implications of that. Does that make sense? Like I'm not as concerned about those fees if they should know better and they're engaging in that behavior versus if they don't. Uh, Commissioner uh, Enrico uh, Viegas, Program Administrator. Um, so those fees um, really only apply, like the lane use fee wouldn't be applied to like a residential street. Um, where there'd be like a lower volume of traffic, which is where um, like you're, you're they're more likely that residents um, are living. Um, it would only be applied to those heavier usage streets because um, we have seen in the past that without um, those fees um, that they would just have the lane closed for however long without actually doing any work. Um, so in order to incentivize that turnover, um, we found that the lane use fees in the inspection fee, applying those um, has captured their attention at kind of moving quicker. Because um, the longer the, that traffic control is up, the longer it's disrupting everyone else. Um, so at least some justification um, for, for those fees. What were the foundations for the fees in this? So the foundation for the fees um, for those um, let me pull that up. Um, I will share my screen again. So here's our schedule of right-of-way fees. Um, so the pavement degradation fee, um, kind of the matrix here, is really what the cost of, what it would cost for like the city to put that back. Um, so we, in using the PCI and then providing like a range, um, this is roughly how much it would cost, um, you know, to restore that if the contractor um, didn't, um, for example. Um, and the inspection fee um, was uh, the cost of the city employee with full benefits, a truck, et cetera, um, with a, 
I think a one and a half multiplier um, to come up with this fee in terms of like how many inspections that that um, you know staff member would do because um, it it is factoring in you know the warranty inspection so one year after the work um, in order to close out the permit to make sure everything was restored properly and it and it handled you know the, the freeze thaw of everything um, and then the the lane use fees um, kind of similar to the logic above. Um, and then the, the parking fee, um, I'm not as familiar with the parking fee. Um, some of that had come from um, parking staff. So that is a justification for, for these fees, at least some history of where they came from. I appreciate that, Enrico. I think that my my focus, actually, I appreciate you going over that, even though I didn't ask my question correctly. I'm talking more about the fines. Um, so the 50 to $250 for noncompliance and the municipal offense fines. Uh-huh. Can you can you talk about the intent around those? I see Melinda jumped on, so I don't know if she wants to add to that. Melinda Harger, Assistant Director of Municipal Services and Operations. I was going to speak to those fees, the 50 to $250. Um, that's based on a section in our regulations that says they're an additional fee for found working without the proper right-of-way control permit shall be the $250 or an amount equal to the total right-of-way permit, whichever's lower. So since the permit starts at $50 and can go up from there, if you're found working without one, you'll have to get your permit and you'll also get a, a charge anywhere from 50 to 250. Um, on top of that is a penalty for not getting it in advance of the work you're doing. So those are the, the fees and how they're structured. Thanks Linda. Can you talk to about the uh, municipal offense fees? may need assistance from Leo on this. Oh, sorry, Melinda Harger, Assistant Director, Municipal Services and Operations. In our regulations, it just says um, that, let me find the exact section so I can read it. There is a section that says persons or business entity shall also be subject to whatever penalty is available under the city code, including but not limited to criminal prosecution. So I think the municipal offense and those fines are set by city code. Um, it, it, if it went that route, we of course would first be applying the 50 to $250. It's more for those repeat offenders um, if, we, if we cannot get compliance with regulations that there's something else, some other route to go there. And, and legal would probably be best to um, answer any questions regarding that. Thanks. Is there, and I, I think I heard Enrico say, you know, there have been instances in which a warning has been sufficient. When you go out and have those conversations, are you weighing the should have known and willfully disregarded piece of that? Uh, what, what staff is weighing, uh, this is Enrico Villegas, program administrator. Um, what staff would be weighing in those instances is say if it was a contractor from out of town that didn't know. Um, that there could be possibility that they weren't aware of the, our regulations, um, that a verbal warning would be issued. Um, that doesn't mean that if they're obstructing the sidewalk that we would allow that. You know, it still requests that the traffic control need to be installed, um, but whether a fine would be issued um, in, in that particular case, if, if it does appear that um, they genuinely did not know, then we would not apply that. Thanks, Marinko. 
I had a question from Melinda. Um, this is Lisa. So you had indicated that that municipal fine was probably reserved more for the habitual offender. Is that what you said? Is that how it's written up in the, in the ordinance or the, um, the policy, whatever it is? So I'll, uh, Commissioner Larson, I'll hop in on that. Um, so in, in terms of the, uh, the application, um, it, it allows for that. Um, so if, say for instance, if a right-of-way permit was not procured, um, you could levy the, the $50 fine um, in addition to seeking um, other municipal, seeking that as a municipal offense. Um, but again, since the, the regulations are still relatively new, um, it's really been one and a half years of doing this um, that we want to make sure that we give um, uh, everyone an opportunity to be able to comply. Um, now, in terms of uh, going back to uh, Commissioner Nando's question of why they were so high, um, it I, I don't have an answer for why they're a thousand or twenty five hundred. Um, but in asking. Um, you know, staff on where that had come from. Um, there wasn't, I don't have the best answer other than um, what was told to me was that's just what the commission wanted at that time. Um, <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> I think that kind of um, supports what I'm trying to say about we need to relook at these fine systems because Enrico just indicated we don't have a real solid reason as to why we decided to charge these, these dollar amounts. Um, and if, and then I go back to the municipal fines, if it is to target habitual, habitual offenders, then that should be stated as such um, in, in the actual fine system, uh, some sort of whatever the, 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 guidelines are whatever the system is. Um, Melinda Harker, Assistant Director of MSO. I do know that the fee structure through the right-of-way regulations, when those were drafted back in 2019, uh, there's a lot of thought that went into those. As far as the municipal offense and addressing when it can and cannot be used, um, it's likely that is listed in the city code. Um, and again, I'm not sure if we've ever applied that, um, but it is in the city code, not in the regulations for right away specifically. That would be good to know what that specifically says. Then. I, I would tend to agree. Maybe just take a little more time and maybe um, legal and if there's some more uniformity or clarity we could get. So I would ask if other commissioners are interested in that, having a relook at the, the fine system. I see consensus on that. Um, are there any other items that commissioners specifically wanted to speak to on this or was there specific questions that Enrico needed us to answer for him this evening? But the sign regarding the assessing the fees annually or flat fee. That's one that they wanted. The assessing the fees annually or flat fee, for example. Thank you, Commissioner. 
Enrico, do you need more from us? What can we give you for that? Uh, uh, commissioners, uh, Enrico Viegas, uh, program administrator. Um, what would be helpful um, to be able to have from you all is uh, um, what, ha what has been uh, tricky for staff um, is in comparison to sidewalk dining where it's more of a revenue generating item, um, a retaining wall or something like that isn't. Um, so trying to come up with a system to kind of make that fair, um, it is a little hard. Um, so I guess number one, um, would, would the commission be interested in doing a, um, an annual fee or just a one-time fee? Um, or are we still, is the commission still interested in charging for like non-revenue generating items? Um, I, it's more just kind of open-ended to make sure that I, I capture all of your thoughts and make sure that we get, um, you know, some good policy from it. Yeah, I, I think I would be interested in either just a one-time fee versus every year. It just seems, it seems a bit much to, especially since it's not revenue generating. The purpose partly is for you to be aware of what is in the right of way for your own purposes, for the city's purposes. Is that basically accurate? Yeah. So from a record keeping perspective, does a one-time fee conveniently cover that? Yeah, I, I believe so. Enrico Villegas, MSO. Yeah, I see consensus on that. What else can we help you with? I believe that's it. Uh, Enrico Villegas, MSO. I, I think I have enough information to uh, proceed forward. All right. Thank you very much. Um, this is simply a discussion item. So again, it was just to give staff direction. Um, and I believe we can move on to commission items. Can I just say one thing? I just want to thank Enrico for, for working on this um, process here with the right-of-way and, and the work that he's put in to engage the community on what works for them as well as meeting the needs of the city. I want to really thank you, Enrico, for doing that. And I hope, I hope you continue that. Thank you. All right, thank you. Yes, commission items. Does anyone have any items we need to discuss? I, I think that um, one thing that we might want to talk about either tonight or soon is, you know, I think that masking may be coming back and we may want to consider how we structure our meetings yet again um, in order to be nimble for that and for the folks in our homes who are not able to be vaccinated at this point. Um, everyone's safety. So uh, I, I agree. I also feel bad that our mayor's not here, our city manager's not here. Yeah. So I don't know that that's necessarily <laughs> a discussion for tonight, but I think that it is something that we need to talk about and that seems to be changing swiftly. So it might be something that we need to figure out sooner than later. I presume that's already on your radar, Brandon. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Thank you. Anything else? Nope. Um, then that brings us to the city manager's report. 
Okay, Assistant City Manager Brandon McGuire. Um, just briefly, we have a couple items on the manager's report, our monthly building permit report. Um, and I'd encourage you to read through that as I'm sure you do every month. A lot of activity with our Planning Development Services Department right now. Um, very interesting uh, data for you. I, I wanna draw your attention to um, couple items on the future agenda report. Uh, we did list the multimodal transfer facility and downtown transfer improvement project for August 10th. That is actually gonna be scheduled for August 17th. Um, as you're probably aware, we are uh, creating the August 10th agenda right now um, and the, some of the materials and contracts needed for that uh, presentation are not going to be ready for the for the 10th. So we'll stick with that August 17th date, which has been out um, as a as a public notice for quite a while. So um, I apologize, but that could be a little bit of a lengthy meeting for us on the 17th. <laughs> <laughs> and then the uh, last thing I'd point out is uh, the third memo, um, which has uh, our I guess we're calling them frequently asked questions. I don't know how frequently they, they're asked, but they've at least been asked once, uh, questions related to the budget. Um, and really, I, I think that's helpful feedback um, for the commissioners and the public as we work through the budget process. But more than anything, I wanna draw everybody's attention to that August 30, 31st public hearing date. And that's gonna be our next big public milestone for um, the community to provide input and the commissioners to uh, review the budget one more time. Thank you very much, Brandon. And yeah, I, I did want to comment that I appreciated that. Um, putting all the, there's multiple, we see many memos. So you put them all in one place where people can find them. And I found that very convenient and kind. So thank you to Danielle or whoever did that. That was a great idea. Um, let's move on to calendar items. Anything that um, we need to add or discuss? City manager's reports a public comment. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. I was going to not forget. Ah. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Yes, that's a public comment item. If anyone would like to speak um, to the items that were on the city manager's report. Anyone on Zoom who's interested in speaking on that item? And my comment is, will, will the public be limited to three minutes in that discussion as well? Or, or, or is there some way that some alternative plans so that the public, and I'm speaking broadly <laughs> as myself, as the public, but, but I'm interested in, in, it seems like the, the train is moving forward inexorably and we're not necessarily getting, until it all comes together at the package at the end, okay? Will, will we actually see a picture that we can really comment on? And I, for one, don't think three minutes is a sufficient time to, for comments, quite frankly. So uh, you've heard what I had to say about it, and I'm sure you probably will not change your procedures, but I felt that I needed to say it. Thank you, Phil. I appreciate your comments, and I'm, I'm sure all of us will be speaking with you pretty soon personally, so we can talk about that. I won't put that on staff necessarily as an item. Um, uh, but thank you again for commenting. Um, anyone else did you see in there, Sherry? Uh, no one has indicated on Zoom that they want to speak to this. Okay, item. great. Uh, calendar, any items? 
All right. I think that's everything. Is there a motion? Move to adjourn. Second. <laughs> All those in favor? Aye. 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 Thank you, everyone, very much. I'm sorry. What? Yes. I seconded. I'm sorry. Sorry. Moved and seconded. Good Lord, is all the candidates tonight? <laughs> <laughs>